It's a pleasure to have this special guest on for another episode of the Cricket Blog Podcast. Uh, he's a great advocate for emerging cricket, keeping many fans up to speed with what's happening around the globe. And there's plenty happening at the moment, so we'll try to cover as much as we can. Um, otherwise, we'll be here for days if we try to cover everything, but we'll do our best. So Daniel Beswick from Emerging Cricket. Welcome again to the podcast, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me again, boys. And uh, shout out to you, Charbel, joining the Emerging Cricket contributor uh, group. It's of a pleasure. Sorts. Uh, I don't know what cap number you are. I've got to go back and, and work out retrospectively who fits in where, but uh, enjoy chucking that up. Good debut for EC as well. For me. Oh, thanks. No, it's an absolute pleasure to join the team. And um, we've got a, a special little nugget coming up for you this weekend as well. So um keep out keep an eye for for a direct message from me again this weekend so um so in this interview we'll look at um t20 world cup group stage i'm looking forward to that i think it'll be intriguing um but first you know we'd like to touch on a couple of things um i I like to touch on afghanistan cricket um you know there's a lot happening in that in that country we know politically but in terms of their cricketing future what does that look like to you because that's a bit of a concern at the moment isn't it it's a very tough question, fellas, and I think I've said this a couple of times, but the, the, the thing I would kind of preface with with answering this question is it's impossible to answer in 280 characters. Like mm. some people think it, it can be on, on Twitter. There's just so many different layers to it, and not only is it an issue of obviously the, the Taliban and then the government's influence by the Taliban, there's also cricketing influences we've seen already changes by the Afghan cricket board where uh, the Taliban have basically endorsed some of the moves, sworn people in. And there's photos there with, with people posing in the offices with Taliban flags. So it'll be really interesting to, it'll be really interesting to see what the ICC make of all of it. And if you look at some of the, the precedents that have been set by the ICC in times gone by, any political inf- influence ends in a suspension by the ICC there are differences in specific situations for the ICC where they have banned some teams from playing international cricket while being suspended, but others not. There's a couple of examples looking back a couple of years where uh, Nepal were banned or suspended by the ICC, but they still played international cricket. Now to kind of throw all of the the nationalistic uh, effects into what's going on with Afghanistan, it will be interesting to see how Afghan, Afghanistan as a country compete internationally, whether we see something like the Russian Olympic Committee during the Olympics where the players are allowed to compete and play and represent a team, but not necessarily the country and, and not under a, an Afghan flag, whatever that Afghan flag turns out to be. A national anthem not playing or something in that regard. There are so many facets to this. And, and yeah, I won't profess to being an expert on it, and I'm just as interested as, as to what's going to happen as you guys probably are. But, I mean, looking at, at Afghanistan likely not playing a test match here, I mean, it's 99.9% confirmed not to be played out. Yep. I, I feel sorry for the 11 players who were out here ready to represent uh, themselves on the international front. And I feel now's the time for us to kind of try to unite everyone rather than to sever ties and... I look at a bunch of those players who are probably just yearning just to play international cricket, just to take their mind off things and, and to also just travel freely as, as, as men and women's cricket is, is another part to it. And that's another layer in itself where Afghanistan, when they were given full membership by the ICC, were given a cultural 
exemption uh, quote by the ICC for them to, to be a test team. And the ICC told Afghanistan, look, we're not satisfied by the, the situation of your women's cricket at the moment, but we understand that it's a process that, that will be slow. We've seen barely any evidence to suggest that anything had moved forward in that regard anyway. So look, with all of those factors thrown in, it leaves the ICC asking many questions and, and ultimately some actions will have to be taken. But is it is it like people are saying, oh, let's let's just not let them play any sort of cricket, not whether it's male or female cricket. Is, that, is it a bit um, counterproductive to say that their male cricketers will not be able to play cricket as well? And it, from the mainly for the population of that country to have sort of not to see any cricket at all. Um, is that a bit disappointing because they have worked hard, especially, yes, I agree that the female cricketers have not got the opportunities and, uh, but Taliban don't care about that. Let's be honest. You're not going to force, uh, not, you're not going to say to Taliban that, Oh, we won't let you let your male cricketers play cricket just because your female cricketers can't play cricket. Taliban will say, okay, I, we don't care about that. Just no one plays cricket. Is that, is that sort of where it's heading at the moment? Not 100% sure, Nash. But one thing I will say is that I think if this is the path that nations are going to go down and refuse to play Afghanistan at international level, and there is talk of, of boycotts against Afghanistan during the tournament actually being played out over the next month, I can't help but think that that would only fuel the fire of everything that's happening here Absolutely. and would only leave everyone in, in probably more danger rather than, than less danger. So yeah. to me, and Gideon Haig put this really well when he was asked this question, I think by the team at the ABC a couple of weeks ago, this is such a great opportunity for cricket to work on a humanitarian level as much as it is on a, on a sporting and political level for us to try and bridge a few of these gaps that have been pulled apart by warfare, bloodshed, and other things, you know, Australia owes quite a bit to Afghanistan, given that entire situation of where we stand politically on all of that. And from an Australia, from an Australian point of view, and as an Australian, I feel a little bit ashamed by all of it, because not only from a political standpoint, even looking to it on a cricketing standpoint, and the big three and everything that goes with that, we haven't shown anyone outside of the big three really any respect over the last five years and it's so disappointing to see i mean we've barely traveled to bangladesh and the last time we went to bangladesh we lost we were there voting we keep canceling on them yeah we keep canceling on them we we helped vote them in as full members uh in 2000 and we didn't really help them in any way shape or form we hosted one kind of throwaway top end series in the mid 2000s and that was about it. So there is a blatant disrespect and disregard on a cricketing front towards a lot of these nations. That's even before you throw politics and, and, and geopolitical situations into it as well. So it's disappointing and, and we can only kind of sit here and, and speculate because we're just not savvy to, to what's being said or done. Well, I think we'll sit here and talk about Afghan what Afghanistan's cricket looks like for the future for days to come. But um, moving on to the... Um, to the other nations in in the T20 World Cup qualifier. Coming to coming to the series before that, Oman versus Sri Lanka. Let's touch on that. Um, some de- decent fight by Oman in the first match. Um, what do you think they can achieve in the World Cup? 
these warm-up matches are so fascinating to me because you can tell that a number of these teams are keeping cards close to their chest, not deploying some players, giving the chance of others on the fringes to try and make a name for themselves and trying to enter the team. And Oman had actually probably rested their their best bowler, Bill Khan, in that Sri Lanka match. And it's it's fascinating. There are a couple of games, and, and this isn't one of them because Sri Lanka and Oman aren't in the same group, but there are matches being held as warm-up matches before the World Cup where group opponents actually play each other. So that adds another layer to it completely. But to look at that game in particular, Sri Lanka are by no means world beaters at the moment. And we can talk a whole podcast about them in, in, in itself. But for Oman, they got on the front foot early fires, but was excellent. Swinging the ball almost in that Bilal Khan role that Bilal Khan has normally. Sri Lanka were seemingly looking in, in real trouble. And then Dustin Shanika and Avishka Fernando kind of let Sri Lanka off the hook a little bit. And they're two players that Sri Lanka are going to be banking on throughout the tournament on top of Wanindu Hasaranga when he comes back into the team. And it was a bit of a shame for Oman that they kind of let that game slip and maybe had Bilal played in that, that might not have happened. But then on the batting side, while Oman did fall short in that game, there were a couple of really heartening things to see for Oman because in the opinion of many in the emerging game, their weakness is the batting from, say, five to eight. But... They showed a lot of nows at the back end at the death, trying to go for it. They, they didn't really have much to lose there. But between Nazim Kushi and a couple of other guys, Sandeep Kaur, uh, Muhammad Nadeem, they've kind of, from the outside, they haven't looked like worthy players in that five to eight role. But they came out and showed it against Sri Lanka. And I actually think that bodes well for them coming into the tournament. If those guys can fire, they'll end up having quite a well-balanced side. I think between themselves and Scotland, they're probably battling for that second yeah. spot in that group with, yep. with Bangladesh, uh, probably the, the, the stronger of the, the, the strongest of the four members across the two groups, but also the strongest team in, in that group, understandably. Do you see Oman uh, pulling any upsets? As hosts, I'm fascinated to see how they go at home. Yeah. They don't particularly have a fantastic record in T20 cricket over the last couple of years. They've actually got a losing record. I think they're, 16, uh, excluding that game they played against Sri Lanka, they won 16, lost 19. On their day, they can beat anyone. But when they have a bad day, it goes horribly wrong. And it's been, I don't want to say stereotype of Oman, but it's definitely been something that's been brought up, the inconsistency of their side. They've been rolled for 24 in one-day cricket against Scotland not too long ago. And then in that same little series that they played with Scotland, they actually went on and beat them in the next game quite convincingly. They've also lost to teams like Qatar in the recent past in ACC Western region stuff as well. So I, I would love to think that Oman's hosts as a Cinderella story can progress, but I look at, at Scotland in particular and think that consistency will probably come to the fore and Scotland will probably get a leg up mm. on them in that group. Yeah, I agree. I think the key for Oman is to lessen that gap between the best and their worst cricket. Um, moving on to another team, with you know, I'll be keen to watch them as well. Nash, uh, no doubt about it. The rise of Namibia, I think it's a fascinating group, Group A. But we'll touch on Namibia first before we sort of go into um, you know more detail about the groups. But um, how did the Namibian resurgence sort of come about over the last few years? Can that be credited to the 2016 Under 19 World Cup to some extent, or what do you put it down to? 
that that would be probably one of one of the factors. But I think in the last three years, cricket Namibia really do need to take some of the credit. The, the entire organisation has basically rebuilt itself from top to bottom, and at the high performance level, so many positive changes have been made. Uh, Pierre de Bruyne, as, as head coach of the Namibians, has been excellent. He's he's passed every test as a head coach. He's had Albie Morkel there with him. He's had guys like H.D. Ackman working in batting consultancy roles. He's actually worked it out really well with a number of contacts that he has in, in the cricketing fraternity to really bring this team together. They're a far more professional outfit than they were before this sort of resurgence. You know, they've, they've just moved into basically full-time contracts. They... Uh, achieved one-day international status by winning World Cricket League 2 in Namibia in 2018, 2019. My, uh, <laughs> I've lost track of years with, uh, with with COVID being so prevalent in, in our lives. But I've lost track of days. So <laughs> it, was you're doing all right. it was 2019. Yeah, okay. I was there. I should know what year it was. Um, but they, they kind of, before that tournament, to actually take it back a little bit further, they kept things under wraps a lot. They didn't show us a lot. They trained, I think, in South Africa, kept everything behind closed doors, almost as if to hide from everyone. And then they came out in World Cricket League 2 and were close to unstoppable, really, through a number of, of great innings. And, yeah, once you achieve that one-day international status, the ICC funding comes with that. And moving into full-time contracts, they, they moved to the new uh, Cricket World Cup League 2 structure. They passed every test there. And at the qualifier, they were fantastic. Um, and, and just a pretty well-rounded team led by Herat Erasmus, who's probably, if he's not the best associate batter in the world, he's probably in the top three and a great leader as well. And a number of all-rounders with the addition of an injection of David Visa into the team who qualifies through his dad. And it's a great story as to how he got there. They seemingly cover all bases. And I said this before on our podcast I look at Group A and I've tossed and turned so many times predicting who finishes first and second in that group. You can roll the dice and have every single combination permutation and play out in front of you. I'm so excited as someone who's not only a fan of the emerging game. I'm just keen to show this kind of, for everyone to kind of watch this at home and be like, this is fantastic. You know, guys are giving Sri Lanka a run for their money. Namibia, they could be the, team that that progresses in that group and and causes a few upsets in the in the next round as well by all means who do you think yep yep absolutely who do you think um your prediction would be for the top two from that group though i know it's difficult i know it's difficult i'm asking who uh, do you want to progress so i personally i think that's that yeah that's a tough question i think with my head I think the Netherlands progress in that group. Yeah. I think they've got probably the best depth out of the three teams. The sorry, out of the teams not Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is just a completely different kettle of fish. But I look at those other three teams, and I think that on depth and on balance, I think the Dutch are, are probably the most likely. Ireland are fascinating. I don't think there's just not quite enough there in the fast bowling ranks for mine, and, and we might get into it a little bit later. Mm. But then Namibia as well. I think it might be a flip of a coin between Namibia and Ireland as to who progresses. I've predicted Ireland and the Netherlands to progress in that group on another pod. And 
I think I'm going to have to stick to that. But it again, it took so much tossing and turning and, and consideration because Namibia, by all means, if they're in the other group, I would have had them almost as morals to progress. But in Group A, it's just, it, it is. It's a roll of the dice. And, and one more thing to probably finish off on it. The groups were actually redrawn when the tournament was moved from India to UAE and Oman. And they did it based on ICC rankings. Now, mm. we know that ICC rankings aren't necessarily the, the best measure of a team for a number of reasons, but it was kind of compounded further when teams just didn't play over the last two years because of yeah. COVID. So you had some teams who did play, their rankings rocketed. And then you had the likes of PNG and, and Namibia who didn't really get much of a chance to play. And as a result, their rankings uh, fell because of it. So had it been based on the finishes at the qualifier, which it was originally, we would have had completely different groups, but they were redrawn. And now we have this kind of disparity between the two groups. So did you say Ireland and Netherlands will qualify to that group? Yes. And I'd kind of contradict what I, what I just said, but I think the firepower of Paul Sterling and Kevin O'Brien, Gareth Delaney and Balberni might just be enough. I think, and again, so, so you are, you are inviting Daniel Alexander Brad on, <laughs> on social media. Look, so I get to miss. He can, he can come at me. I think <laughs> could happen. The, you never know. What I, what I did see on, the Sri Lankan cricket website a few days ago, and I'm sure you guys have seen it as well because we made a big song and dance about it, was a, a nice little editorial byline uh, by an author that was greenlit by Sri Lankan cricket at some point for it to go live that basically just wrote off every other team in that group. And I think now it's more of a pride thing as emerging cricket fans for us to say, look, I, I don't think you guys are going yep. through. If you guys are going to... If you guys are going to underestimate the other teams like you have, then you know there's only one thing coming for you. And a number of people have made the great point. What's the point of, of doing that? Because you don't achieve anything no matter what here. If you go through, you've predicted it and you've proven yourself right. Okay, who cares? But if you lose, then this all just comes back oh. into your face again, right? So It's a big target on your back. Exactly. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's, there's nothing good that comes from that. Yeah. From, yeah, from a Sri Lankan. I, I, I did read that and it said something about Namibia and Netherlands being, you know, cakewalk for, for the Sri Lankan yes. cricket team, but it, it wasn't best. It wasn't their best press release. And I, I, I know it was an official press release, so I don't know how that got the green light, but it did. And now they have got a big target <laughs> on their back. Oh, it's especially, be fun especially, especially in a group like that. That's a dangerous group. There's no question about it. That, I agree with you, Dan. That, that's a tough one to predict. Yep. Um, so coming, sticking to Namibia and Namibian cricket, um, where do you see this particular Namibian team going forward in the World Cup? Oh, and and I, sorry, second part of that question yep. is where do you see Namibian cricket going forward in the, let's say, next five years? It's a great question. And it, one thing to probably cite is the fact that they missed out on qualifying for the Under-19 World Cup next year. Uh, Uganda actually qualified out of that region and, and Tanzania were strong as well. So I think the entire sort of Southern African region is a potential hotbed for talent. And one good thing that will come out of that for Namibia is that the competitiveness will ultimately breed better cricket as well. You know, you don't really learn anything by either getting beaten a lot or winning a lot. If you have that consistent challenge in your own region, it normally bodes well for your own success when you go to global tournaments like this but 
this is certainly a golden age for Namibian cricket in so many respects. We, we touched on the off-field admin level of it, but on the field too, one thing to consider is that this is a team that 18 years ago were probably inspired by the 2003 Cricket World Cup Namibian yep. team that, that played. And talking to a couple of guys in Namibia, Herat Erasmus, the captain of Namibia, had a scorebook and was there scoring every game, watching it. His dad was actually uh, one of the managers of the team at that point too. So he's been sort of in the system for as long as he can remember. But other guys like Stephen Bard, and even on the women's side, Irene Van Zale says that they were inspired by that 2003 crop. And here we are 18 years later watching the results of all of that socialization process and all of the cricket that comes in with that. And again, at the high level, they've got it fantastically right that they play a domestic T20 comp with a handful of teams, a lot of 50 over cricket. They get to host the likes of Uganda, Botswana. They've hosted South Africa and Zimbabwe emerging sides as well to prepare for this. They host South African domestic sides and all of this year, they've beaten every single one of these opponents. And it, it, the question keeps being asked, you know, at what point do they find their, their ceiling? And they, they just keep seemingly growing. And they're not an old side either. Outside of the likes of Craig Williams, who's come out of retirement, and maybe David Visa, who's been injected into this team, now qualifying for Namibia after last playing for South Africa in 2016. A lot of the guys are still young. You know, Stephen Bard's probably in his late 20s. I think Erasmus is only 26. Zane Green's young, the keeper. Bernard Schultz has been around, but he's he's not going away anytime soon. And they've got a decent crop. Not this under-19 team that just missed out per se, but the one before that. Nicole Lofty-Eaton is a player that has been picked in this squad, 21 years of age, all-rounder, hits the ball hard, almost in the mold of a Rashid Khan, sort of quick leg spin. And he might make the first 11 at some point during this tournament. And he's a name that we'll hear a lot more of They They just keep seemingly churning out talent and yeah, it doesn't look like it's ending anytime soon, boys. I think that they're a team that we'll hear a lot more of in years to come. Um, if you staying on Namibia, if you consider the top 12 cricket, cricket nations that currently play cricket all to be almost like a, let's say an elite group. Do you see a few years ago um, from my experience watching you know, um, affiliate associate nations. Netherlands seem to be the one trying to break into that group. But do you see, have you seen a shift where it can be down Namibia in the next five years? Quite possibly. The, the Netherlands haven't really done anything to give up that crown. Uh, and they're in one day international super league as well. So yeah. they're being tested and, and that system in, in the Netherlands is going incredibly well too. Uh, Ryan Campbell has, has, has built a really good side, a really deep team you know there are a lot of unlucky guys that missed out on the dutch squad for this upcoming world cup as well which only tells you how deep they they sit as well and i think that's kind of the big difference in associate cricket especially at the very high end over the last five years going back in a bygone era of associate cricket a lot of these teams tended to rely on a handful of players in their team you know you look at canada 2003 it was all about john davison even Tendo, even Ryan Tendo Scarter for the Netherlands building into that, that's probably unjust for a lot of really good Dutch players. But quite often it was the case of, well, if your gun players don't score runs or take wickets, then the game's gone. But I look at the next group outside of that 12, as you mentioned, Nash, 
the Dutch, Namibia, Scotland, um, probably looking at someone like Oman as well. They've got almost an 11 that has 11 match winners rather than just two or three. So what's happened over the last few years and something that's a little bit more positive out of all of this is with Cricket World Cup League 2 in that structure, they get to play a huge number of one-day international matches over a two- to three-year cycle, which gives teams the freedom of knowing what's in front of them and those boards actually being able to account for that and to kind of lock that in and to lock these players in. In the past, it was a case of, well, we don't know when our next tour is going to be. We don't know when the next World Cricket League is going to be. We don't know how many games in a year we're going to play. We can't guarantee people a contract, a central contract, because we don't know how many games they're going to play in a year. And just as people and and you guys would know, and everyone listening to this as human beings, you know, if we don't have that security in something, we're ultimately going to try to find something that we find that security. A la a job of, of something outside of the game. So having this stuff ultimately brings the best back and able to kind of train and play on a, on a seemingly full-time basis. And it only bodes well for their quality on the field. And, and, Outside of that 12, you know, there are a handful of teams that are on the precipice of, of doing something amazing. But also, too, that competitiveness at that level makes all of them stronger as well. So it, it, it's a good time, I think. It's a strong time in, in associate cricket, and, and I think the cogs are starting to turn. Yeah, it's almost like that group beyond the top 12 just keeps on increasing. The, the nations just keep on pushing the, you know, ring, knocking on the door of the top 12 and, you know, asking the bigger nations to pull their socks up, basically, and just you know, let them know that we are here to stay and we will be here for the long haul. So they better start, you know, uh, not just promising, but also delivering on their promises of tours and not canceling the tours. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's going to be interesting times uh, in the, probably in the next five years with so many teams coming up um, Mm. from the associate and affiliate nations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just back on the World Cup, I just wanted to ask you about the second group as well. Um, what are your thoughts on that one? Maybe not as big as a group of death as the, um, as the first one, but maybe touch on PNG as well, their journey and uh, what they might achieve in this tournament. Uh, not to digress, but I'm really excited to see PNG's jersey. It, oh, it's super. It's up there. Everyone releasing it? kits for this tournament have done an unbelievably good job. My... My bank account won't like me in, in a couple of weeks' time, I don't think. Yes. <laughs> a lot of my heart end will be going towards those. Well, uh, sorry, going back, going back. Sorry. Uh, yeah, PNG, what a story. It was third time lucky in a sense. They came, they had come within, I think, a game of qualifying the last two World Cups, the last two World Cup qualifiers before that. And this was, I think this was the World Cup they almost had to qualify for. I know we've got one next year as well, but this was the one in that this has been a group of about 15, 16 players that have been together for the best part of this whole journey. And they're not really a team that can rely on having a huge pool of players really fight for those spots. They, they, they tend to try and make the best of, of what they have. And to take it a little bit further than that, the Hanna Butter Village in the outskirts of Port Moresby has been basically the sole hunting ground for where a lot of these PNG guys come from. I think there's something like 11 players in the squad that hail from that specific region, specific region alone. 
if you talk to people involved in the ICC and with Cricket PNG, the participation numbers in PNG are huge. We're talking in the hundreds of thousands of, of kids who are picking up cricket balls and bats and, and playing in, in some regard. But this national team, this was their moment. And they did, they're a little bit like Oman in that they do have four or five really important players in this team. The opening combination of Asad Vala and Tony Ura will be huge in their entire campaign. And it was what kind of got them on the crest of the wave to qualify for this particular tournament. I think the opening partnership average of those two guys that they put on was in the 60s. They had an unbeaten one in a 10-wicket win against Bermuda. They put on 100 uh, in one of the other matches and they, they found 50 a couple of times. I think they only really failed once or twice. And that was ultimately a great platform for them. But what they do have as a team is that they can all kind of bowl and bat a little bit. And it's so strange. They have basically 12 players that they're sticking to in both the 50 over and the T20 formats at the moment. And they're still winless in Cricket World Cup League 2 in the 50 over side of things because they have really focused solely on, on T20 cricket. And they play with the same 11, but they kind of slide everyone in in different spots across the two formats. It's a really fascinating thing, but they have Norman Vanua, who will probably bat eight or nine on paper on the, the team sheet. But is a hard-hitting all-rounder, just like so many others in, in the playing group. They've got about eight bowlers that Asad Vala can throw the ball to, and he can actually bowl himself. So I think there are a couple of really key cogs to them. One is their opening partnership. Two is the captaincy and, and Vala leading the team, how he manages his bowlers and how we can kind of fit all the pieces together. And then there's a leg spin of Charles Zamini who comes from just an esteemed cricketing family. You know, both his parents have played for PNG. Two of his brothers have played for PNG. His grandfather's played for PNG. And they've got a little bit of X factor with the ball and the sign of Pekana could be a real find uh, at the tournament as a, as a left arm quick. And they've got, as I said, eight all-rounders who they just need to go with a hot hand. Whoever's got the hot hand, whoever's in form, let just get on their back and, and run with them because that's kind of how they play the cricket. And they're a decent fielding side too. So I'm fascinated by how they'll go. I know, I know you did speak about, especially these nations, um, having that core 12 or 15 players who have you know stuck together over the last couple of years and got, got to the T20 World Cup. But with PNG, do you almost see an over-reliance, for lack of a better term, actually, on Asadwala here as a leader, as a player, you know, to maybe as a, as, as a bat, as a ball, just everything? As a batter, yes. Uh, I think that it, it's a beauty. It, it's, a, yeah, it, it's a beauty and a curse, isn't it, where you have so much all-around talent, but probably not enough specialization and especially in associate cricket, that affects you more on the batting side than the bowling side. And this is something that can be said about a lot of associate nations because in times gone by, they haven't played enough cricket where I think as bowlers, because it's somewhat more of a routine in the nets, bowling in practice, you can hone that a lot better off the field. When it comes to batting, it seems to be there seems to be a little bit more nuanced. And maybe I'm coming from it as a batter and me just thinking that it's a harder skill, but that comes a lot with, with match practice and, as I said, nuance and, and tinkering and fixing things up kind of as you're, as you're playing and not trying to change too much, but just trying to find that blend. 
And I do fear with PNG that because not enough of them really specialize with the bat, it doesn't affect with them affect them as much with the ball. But with the bat, I do notice at times, you know, if they do lose two or three quick wickets, it's so hard for them to come back from that. And yeah, from a batting point of view, Vala is is kind of everything. He's all or nothing almost for this team. If if he doesn't make runs, I, I do kind of fear it's a situation sort of like those teams of yesteryear where they do rely too much on a specific individual player. With the ball, I'm satisfied with, with what they've got is enough. But yeah, Asad Vala will need to have probably the tournament of his life for them to, to progress to the next stage, in my opinion. And, and your top two in that group, Group B? I... I think Bangladesh are almost guaranteed. I think it's, I look at them and, and with Shakib back, I just think that he brings too much quality almost by himself for, for them not to progress. You know, had he not been there, if we had this tournament last year when we should have COVID obviously changing all of that and Shakib not playing, then it's a completely different kettle of fish. Yeah, I think with him back, I, I do think that they'll be too strong. And there's a couple of real breakout stars for Bangladesh as well. You know, Mohammed. Muhammad Nine looks a really class player at the top. Important of the tournament for him. And the Fizz, Mustafa Zid, you know, he's he's basically a glorified spin bowler in a way, the way yeah. that he kind of varies his pace. Yeah. He's, he's not a spin bowler, obviously, but he's he's almost like that. His control of pace is is world class. You know, that's make no bones about that. If he's not one of the best short form bowlers in the world, he's got to be really close. So yep. I like them to progress. And then I think there's probably a little bit too much collective strength in the Scots. I think yeah. Scotland will probably progress. I don't know if Oman can really bank on the home conditions enough because I just don't think they've been good enough at home to really warrant that favoritism tag for the second spot. They've got a number of world beaters too, but yeah, I, I would. I think the safe the safe bet is is mm. with Scotland at the moment across the the other three teams. But again, it's it's T20 international cricket. We know that. You know, the, the most predictable part about it is that it's unpredictable. But I think if I was to be safe, I would say Bangladesh and, and Scotland would progress from that group. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping Bangladesh don't so that we get to see some stump kicking from Shakib. <laughs> at some <laughs> or you're stage. just a, a closet emerging cricket fan through and through. He is. Yeah, yeah. Scratch the yeah. surface a little bit. I will yeah. mention, I will say that Bangladesh did lose to Hong Kong in 2014 they did. at home. Yes. And yes. I think Shakib was playing then. I, yeah, and I think I was, Nepal, yes. Nepal gave Bangladesh a decent game as well in that tournament. So, yeah, I don't think Bangladesh can take anybody lightly. I think, too, all these teams will know more about the Bangladeshis and the Sri Lankas than the other way around. And this yeah. is something that will change. This will change in years to come when we get more data and analytics on a lot of these associate members. And I'm sure the team analysts at Bangladesh and Sri Lanka are doing as much work as they can. But I think there are more unknowns. There are definitely more unknowns in the associate countries. And I'm looking at these warm-up matches that are being played in the lead-up thinking, well, you can tell that there are times when a number of these teams are resting players because they just don't want to show them. And it gives a good opportunity for fringe guys to to make a case themselves as well. So if, if the teams of... Sri Lanka and Bangladesh's supposed ilk and their and their history have no idea what's in front of them. How can they prepare for someone like that? I agree. Touching touching a bit on Ireland, like I, I know we touched on Ireland before. Um, where do you see the biggest? Probably not disappointment, but you know, 
not something that you would not have expected when they did start their journey um, in in after gaining the test test status. It's been really difficult for Ireland. And there have been a number of things on and off the field that have affected them. They actually came into a, a bit of strife. They're actually the subject of a, of a cyber fraud and they, they think they lost quite a bit of money. They never actually disclosed, I don't think, how much money they lost in all of that. Uh, but Warren Dutram had to come out and basically say, well, this is where a lot of our money's gone and it, we're not getting it back. It's not being recouped. So one that was one thing off the field that's been affected by them. And I think they're overall just a bit disappointed and almost disillusioned by the other test nations as to how much test cricket they got to play since they've gained full membership. Talking to Kevin O'Brien about this, they were under no sort of disillusion that they were kind of at that full member table. They're almost associate, almost full member twos in that they're not in the top nine that get to play in the world test championship for a start which is a huge disappointment, you know, for, for, for them, they want to play contextual international cricket at any level. Yeah. Yes. They want to play test cricket, but they want to play it with purpose. You know, they don't want to just play a one-off test match against England at Lords or, you know, against Pakistan in, in Malahide, which they have. And I, I think they are a little bit disillusioned by the, the situation at hand. And I, I, you know, I can't help but agree with, with that sentiment. They are playing in one day international super league, which they seem to be tr- trucking along fairly well. I, I don't necessarily think they'll get an automatic qualification for the 2023 world cup, but they do get to play more cricket on, on that front. And again, they, they look a pretty good side in, in one day cricket. They beat England in England uh, in one day super league action, whether or not England thought there was anything bearing on that game. It's yet to be seen because they kind of called it a dead rubber when it wasn't, there were 10, uh, cricket world cup super league points up for yep. grabs but i think they're just they're in this awkward kind of halfway house and, and they've been the first to kind of say it um they're yeah disappointed ultimately by how it's all gone and i think they're almost relying still on if teams tour england then they will make that detour and, and play against ireland yep. on that same tour and that's what they're kind of still relying on so Everything the game giveth, it, it taketh as well. They're being given full membership and it's great. It, it's a great moment. They deserve it. But again, I, I think they're in this sort of, in this middle halfway house of international cricket where I don't think international cricket really know what Ireland are. And Ireland are trying to establish themselves as, as yeah, as the next sort of prominent full member. Yep. Yep. It'll be interesting to see where Ireland go in the next few years, especially um, with test cricket as well. Um, Daniel, Walk us, walk us and the listeners through the teams which have surprised you by qualifying and also similarly the teams which have been really disappointing or really surprised you by not qualifying for the T20 World Cup. There were huge questions when both Nepal and the USA didn't even get through their continental qualification to, to go to the global qualifier. The USA lost out to Bermuda, which was... Not a head-scratching moment. That's probably unfair to, to Bermuda, but a lot of questions were asked in the aftermath of that. The same with Canada too. Canada have fallen away a little bit in that they missed out on one-day international status at Cricket World Cup, uh, sorry, at World Cricket League 2 in Namibia that Namibia won. Uh, and as a result of that, you know, they missed out on a bucket load of ICC funding and it's meant that their cricket has stagnated as a result of that. It, it 
cricket at that level really is still almost a hunger games of sorts. If you don't win, you know, you, you don't get the funding. And, and as a result, you see teams fall away. Kenya's another example of that mm. to a degree, although there was a lot of financial malpractice in the, in the Kenyan setup as well, which as you can imagine, didn't help, but yeah, Nepal would have been really disappointing, uh, disappointed to miss out. Uh, they lost out to Singapore. Singapore were fantastic. Tim David and a bunch of players were, were great for them. But yeah, there were a couple of, of disappointments. UAE, I think, will be really disappointed by the way that their cricket, their cricket's gone in, in their qualification campaign. A lot of that was out of their control too, in that they had a number of guys who were caught in regards to the anti-corruption unit and don't really want to talk about that too much. But you know, when you lose four players to to stuff like that, it's it's very hard to come back. And they still gave it a pretty decent crack. And they've got a couple of really young guys in that UAE team who show and will show a lot of class. They beat Ireland in a, in a World Cup warm-up, uh, warm-up match. Vrita Aravind and Kartik Mayapan look like two really good young players coming through for them. And I think Hong Kong too will probably be a little bit disappointed. They missed out on qualifying. And again, they missed out when they didn't attain ODI status at the end of World Cricket League 2. And they're seeing the same results a la Canada, where Anshu Rath has actually moved to Odisha or Vidarba to, to play his his cricket in, in Ranji Trophy and look to get picked up in the mega auction next year because he'll qualify as an Indian player. And Mark Chapman from Hong Kong has gone from strength to strength playing for New Zealand. So there are a couple of, you know, there's always winners and losers when it comes to associate cricket. There, there's a balance where when someone does really well on the other side, it ultimately means that, that someone has to face the consequences of that. Ideally, in a perfect world, we would see associate cricket not have so much bearing on it, like the full members who seem to play a, a three-match T20I series for fun and, you know, whoever loses yeah. it, it doesn't really matter. But, yeah, they're, they're probably, you know, some of the countries that have been really disappointing and disappointed with themselves over the last few years. Nepal seems to, I think they'll come back stronger. But, yeah, I do fear at times that there are a number of countries who, once they do fall out of that bracket, it, it's so, so hard for them to come back. Brilliant. Daniel, your knowledge and your insights are amazing. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Um, to discuss associate cricket and emerging cricket and the World Cup to come. Um, we'll definitely have you on.